Hello, welcome to the Shellovision Podcast. I'm Jacob Levan, and this is the season finale of the Shellovision Podcast. We have the magnum opus of guests today. She is a professor at Mizzou. She teaches physics and astronomy. She worked for NASA for a few years, and she was actually an astronaut. Today we have Dr. Linda Godwin. Hello. Good to be with you today. Thank you for being on. This is a uh, great privilege. So we have a few students that submitted questions that we would like to ask you. Ben W. asked, what was it like to come back to Earth after being in space? Yeah, so, you know, the thing that changes for us in space is that because we're in a free-fall orbit around the Earth, we experience a feeling of weightlessness. And so um, one of the things that's different about coming back is our head brain adapts and our inner ear balance kind of stuff adapts. And so there's a little bit of then readapting to Earth coming back. Like maybe you don't want to touch your head back all the way. Things feel heavy for a while. And I will point out my longest shuttle flight was... Um, you know, 12 or 13 days, and so now we have people who come back after six to nine months, and that's, that's I'm sure, is much more of a rehab for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, Jacob A. asks, what major advancements in space travel have you, uh, what are you most excited for since your last mission? Um, okay, so I last flew, and it depends on how young your listeners are, my last flight was in um, 2001, so that has been a while. However, I wouldn't say there have been any major advances in spaceflight in general. I mean, we've had more robotic probes around the solar system. We still get off the Earth in about the same kind of rockets. There has been more development in commercial space. And, you know, we've had um, private companies now fly supplies to the International Space Station. And, you know, so I like like all the planning that's been going on. I like the commercial space. Uh, You know, NASA's back to wanting to explore beyond low Earth orbit. So those are all great things. Oh yeah, I just saw that uh, NASA named their next mission to the moon Artemis. I think that's really interesting. I just haven't heard that as well. Yeah, twin, bro- twin sister to Apollo, I guess. Yeah, I think that's really, really kind of cool. Yeah. Um. So Jaden P asks, what's the scariest event that occurred on a mission? Okay, I didn't have you know any nail biter cliffhangers. Okay, so I think just getting through the launch. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on top of millions of pounds of thrust as we lifted off with those solid rocket motors and main engines burning fuel at a really rapid rate. Um, so I would say that's not really scary because you deal with the risk, but that's the most attention getting. And I didn't have a really scary thing that happens. I was in orbit. Um, so Austin W asks, how difficult were your everyday tasks while in space? So different things in space, just the fact that everything floats is kind of cool, but it means when you go to do a job, everything floats. And so all the pieces, you got to think about where do I put them, velcro them, gray tape, leave them in a bag, uh, and and losing things. (laughs) So Austin W. also asks, uh, what was your view of space like from space? All right, yeah, so like how does everything look? Well, all right, so if you picture the whole Earth in some way in your head and then just go little bit further out that's our altitude in low earth orbit so we're a few hundred miles high not huge compared to the size of the earth but it gets us enough above the atmosphere we can stay in this orbit that we want so really we're no closer to things but we are above the atmospheric effects so just like in your house if you're going to look out when it is dark outside you got a dark adapt so if we would do that uh for a while and let our eyes get used to it and really turn out our interior lights I would say the stars, we see more stars because it's not like we're in the middle of the city and we are above the atmosphere. 
And because our orbit goes both above and below the equator, we can see southern constellations if we look for them. So it is a different view of the sky. And like anywhere, you never want to look directly at the sun. And it was cool, you know, if the moon happened to be in the right phase as we were orbiting, every 90 minutes around the world, we would get a different view and sometimes see the moon, you know, on the horizon. But unfortunately, on shuttle flights, we didn't get any closer to these things. Looking out was the best. Actually, looking back at Earth was the best. Was that kind of a, like, trippy experience almost to see the Earth? Yeah, you know, it filled our view, but because we would go around every 90 minutes, and during that time, the Earth would rotate a little bit more, we'd get a different swath of, you know, where our ground track was, and day-night cycle every orbit. So everything, you know, in terms of how you measure your day, it was different. I have kind of a off-off question. What's your favorite thing to look at on Earth from space? Um, oh, man, you know, nobody can ever pick one thing. <laughs> uh, well, deserts were very interesting because they had a lot of contrast. And, you know, so like flying over the middle of the U.S., say if it was kind of greenish or brownish, it looked a lot the same, but high contrast in desert areas, coastlines. Um, and then at night when it, when it was dark and we were on the back side of the Earth relative to the sun, you could see city lights if we were over land, and that's where the people were. You know, you could, you could actually look down and see, I see human-made lights, you know, there are people there, and it could be a big city, you know, like the East Coast is lit up at night or something, or, or around Rio or something in South America. And then you just see the almost empty spaces, but still a little bit of light here and there. Joseph S. asks, when you first went to space, uh, what were your thoughts, or were you worried at all? Uh, you know, you kind of think, after all these years of trying, I, on my first flight, you know, I made it, we had a liftoff, the people that came to see the launch, my family and friends, they got to see it, and we are finally here, and you never really, you know, later missions, you say, okay, I've got the experience, I know what to expect, but the first time, I uh, just didn't really know how the daily life would go, so, um, my first thoughts were, wow, this is really different, I guess, it's pretty cool. Was your image of space like when you were training anything like when you actually got up there? Um, yeah, and you know, I think that's even better today. But we started using graphics out our simulation, you know, windows simulating the view. And, and particularly we would do it for uh, entry coming in and landing. And so, you know, there were a lot of similarities. Um, but it all fell short, of course, for real. Of course. <laughs> Kylie W. asks, did your time in space have any effects on your body or your health? Uh, for me, I would say not long-term. For the people who are up for many, many months now in space station, they certainly track things like their bone loss and changes in uh, cerebral spinal fluid pressure and things like that change on them. They keep tracking that. For me, uh, one thing that does happen while we're up there is we get a little taller because our spine decompresses and whatever the cartilage I guess between you know the vertebrae and so I know for me I got about an inch taller so that was one change that happened but guess what when you come back it all it all turns to what you were so you don't get to keep that height. <laughs> so the same student asks what was your takeoff and re-entry like you kind of talked about this a little well I, you know the takeoff bit. of course is by far the most dynamic and so all that power the power flight only lasts eight and a half minutes, and then incredibly, we're in an orbit that we still have to circularize to be safely above the atmosphere, but it's a quick ride out of town. And so that is a time you're just thinking, you know, hope it all works right, <laughs> trusting a lot of people to do the right thing. Entry is slowing down to come home and then using the friction coming through the atmosphere to bleed off a lot of that energy. So the contrast is it's much quieter. I mean, sometimes there's some sound and uh, and less dynamic, but the interesting thing coming home 
is that if as we slow down we start to feel the effects of gravity and it is overemphasized after our brain got used to scaling back everything we were floating all of a sudden here's something you've got to maybe hold something up and it feels much heavier than it should mm -hmm. not because in a few days your muscles get that weak but your brain doesn't know yet it's got to recalibrate again you know to get back here so you, are you kind of uh disoriented the first few hours you get back or few, first few days i uh i definitely felt my sense of balance a little bit off and i do think in the early days of the shuttle we often came home back to houston texas where we lived on the same day we landed that didn't that kind of changed later on i think they did finally tell people to stop driving the first day because <laughs> they would like roll over the curb or something you know little misjudge a turn so i think it took a day or two to get the bearings back but uh, i felt pretty good after that Elizabeth R. asks, what was your biggest difficulty when preparing for a space flight, and how did you overcome it? Oh, wow. Um, you know, so many people help us with that. And so when we get in close to a mission, when we did on the shuttle, it has to be past tense. Uh, our schedule was laid out for us for the week. We went from session to session for training. They would show us our stowage and say, here's what, here's what we're taking. You'd go pick out the food you wanted. That would all be put on board. I mean, truly, we were so well taken care of getting ready for a flight, and everything was done. And I guess, um, you know, one of the things we would kind of be unsure of is what do we want, you know, what if we want to know little extra notes? And so one thing we could do, and even worked on it a, a few days prior to flight, is just writing down extra things for us to remember or saying, hey, I'd like to do this. We got to take a little crew notebook with us. That was kind of our personal thing we put together. So in a sense, that kind of took care of anything that I you might think wasn't covered by all the procedures that were flying that we called the flight data file. They really took pretty good care of. So what was what was on your list of things to do while in space? Oh gosh, what uh, you know you asked me to think back a few years now. Sometimes it was just you would say, well, you know, if we have a press conference about this on air to ground and they ask us about this experiment, here's some extra things I want to remember about it. Or sometimes it might be things that you want to make sure, even though this was also on official lists, might be things to make sure we got photos of in, in space, like certain reminders of, hey, don't forget, you know, you wanted to do this. And, and I think my first flight particularly, I made a little summary of the highlights of every day just because I was a, just kind of a little paranoid of falling behind even though we had detailed flight data file plans that told us what we did almost every moment of the day. So those, those kind of things, we weren't supposed to put tech, you know, technical things in it about the flight because uh, that was all reviewed by other people. So Mariah B. asks, what was it like to go on a spacewalk? <laughs> like meeting your own private spaceship. <laughs> And always tethered, by the way. Really, really important. And, you know, you can't, it, it was several hours of preparation to get ready, and then we'd be in the suit, pressurized with, with pure oxygen, and get in the airlock. And I realized all the hours and hours and hours we spent in the water tank practicing was very good training, even though it wasn't exactly, of course, like the real thing. And, and even now, to look back and think, I got to be on the outside of the space shuttle and be on the outside of two space stations. And... Just kind of, um, it was pretty awesome. And it was good to feel like you completed it, you know, and got everything done. And um, I mean, it's the closest you ever get to just being alone in space, really, is being out there in your own suit. Mm -hmm. I know you docked on the uh, space station Mer. Did you have any weird interactions with uh, the uh, cosmonauts while in there? Well, it was just two of us U.S. astronauts out on the spacewalk. Now, when we docked to Mir, you mean while we were doing an EVA or just docked to Mir? Just docked. Just docked, yes. Yeah, two Russians that were already there we had met on Earth before they launched. And so what was really cool about the whole thing is you get to actually go visit somebody in Earth orbit, you know, and there's and see 
the Russian space station. So it was just a great experience, and we didn't have any strange interactions or anything. Um, I think they're, you know, they're very glad to have visitors. Actually, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of unique to have somebody come up and say hello. And you know, we had several shuttle missions that got to go dock with them here. It's a major program. So I have a question. Um, what was it like to work alongside and know people like Sally Ride, the first American woman in space, and uh, Mark Kelly? He was one half of the twin experiments, like on Earth now. What was it like to know those people? Well, you know, we just we had a lot of astronauts that worked together. We were all just kind of in it together, and um, and it was nice to say, you know, I overlapped with Sally Ride. I mean, when I flew with Mark, he was new on the flight, and it was my fourth mission, you know. So I was an experienced person, and I knew both Mark and Scott, and uh, I, you know, really enjoyed everybody I was on a crew with, and you kind of develop a special closeness, I think, to those people. So I, but really the people I work with at NASA, all the astronauts that I got to know, some of whom were there longer than others, came and went, but all of the other really great people we worked with was one of the best experiences. Do you keep in contact with any of those people now? Yeah, I do some of them, yeah. And, and in terms of astronauts, we have reunions every couple of years or other events that we see other, you know, that's, one of the perks of having been an astronaut is that you kind of get to carry some of that into the rest of your life. You know, you always have that connection, and, uh, and I definitely do appreciate that. But I also keep connected with many other people I worked with there too. Just a lot of people there because they just really, really wanted to be a part of that program, which made everything very, just very dedicated groups of people and and definity projects like shuttle missions that had a real ending, and then you know you could go off and start on something else. Did uh. Did you have any, like, did you have a space work best friend kind of thing? Uh, well, I had a lot of a lot of good friends in the office. And I will say, you know, in my astronaut class, um, Timmy Jernigan was the other woman in my class. So I think, you know, we had a special connection for quite a while while we were both there because uh, of that kind of bond. But really, I interacted with a lot of people um, there. And, you know, although he's gone now because he died of cancer, I met my husband there as one of the astronauts. So certainly that was a most special connection, you know, to have made. How has spaceflight impacted your everyday life, or like how you view the world? <laughs> it didn't really change a lot of things, but I have thought about it, I thought about this, what I'm going to mention, I thought about it while I was in space, and a lot after I got back, it's just observing our world, when you go around it, and I think also feeding into this was the whole international aspect of the space program and all the people we got to meet. It makes the whole world seem more connected, and you realize, you know, we're sharing all the same air, we're sharing all the same atmosphere, and we have a lot of these human-made boundaries, but we are all together, humanity, on this beautiful oasis, and uh, I just wish I could make all that work better, you know. I think that's the main thing I brought back, is we're not all that different from all the other humans on this planet, and, you know, I'll share it with all the animal life, too, so it's... Well, we're very busy up there, and I don't think I came back fundamentally changed, you know, as, as my outlook on on life, that's something I feel pretty deep about, but I think that enhanced. So do you think do you think we need to focus more on commercialized space or like the government funded space programs? I know that's kind of a loaded question. Um, I think we do need both. I mean, um, NASA is a big agency that has a lot of inertia with it. It fundamentally can't change very much because politically it has to be partitioned around the country. On the other hand, it has a lot of expertise, has a lot of history and knowledge of how to do things, doesn't have to make a profit, well, I actually can't make a profit, mm -hmm. 
And so there's some things that you that and, it, and that have to be financed by the government to really happen because there's no profit in it. And and also NASA has this history of pioneering new things. So I think NASA's niche is kind of what they're trying to do right now is to go farther out beyond Earth orbit. But yet the private companies, you know, we have to uh, allow them to do things. And I think the divide right now is is pretty good. However, in the end, they have to make profit. And I know there's a lot of good business people running some of these country companies, uh, a couple of high-profile ones. But eventually something will happen. You know, sometimes they lose a mission. So far, it's just been unproved missions. And there's always a trade-off between testing and safety, margin of error, uh, and profit. So different things motivate, you know, commercial private space versus the government. And uh, so I think we got, hopefully we have a good blending of that. Chloe C. asks, was it harder to become an astronaut since you're a female? You know, I don't know because I've only experienced one life here. (laughs) But I do know that, you know, a a few years prior to when I got in, women had no chance. And so by the time they got around to the shuttle program, they were finally hiring women. And then I think that opened up a certain amount of fairness that was in the program. But I was only eligible because at that point I was working on my PhD in physics and I had therefore the educational background and experience to at least apply and be competitive. So I think the interesting thing about coming up through STEM like that was I was often the only woman, although not all the time. And so it was really kind of those things that for me paved the way that you just had to kind of get used to that, you know, that there weren't a lot of women doing. And I kind of seemed to have escaped the worst. I mean, I had some people try to give me bad advice here and there, from their, you know, bad from my perspective, good from theirs. But overall, I didn't have anybody throwing big stumbling blocks in my way, but just because there were other people who had already kind of removed those. But the older I get and I look back, I appreciate the people who really worked, the women who worked for things like this who didn't get to do it. But it opened the door by the time I came up. So I guess the final answer is not really from my perspective because of the time frame of when I applied to be an astronaut. They were just opening the doors. But there is a higher percentage of women in the classes now than we had to start with. What personally got you interested into a STEM career? Was there anybody that was an inspiration? Oh, yeah, I had really good teachers. I always have to give a shout-out to teachers. And I just, you know, I had good... From the time I got to junior high and high school, math, I had good, good people doing that, and I just liked math. And I remember my mom, for my sister and I, we, you know, we were little, she'd give us math problems at home and just practice that. And I, I have a twin sister, and we went through all the math and science together in high school and even through college and came to grad school together. And so I always had that. You know, there was uh, always somebody there who was kind of doing the same thing mostly that I was, some different classes, and, you know, we went together. So it was an automatic support. But definitely my high school science teachers and math teachers, uh, never had anybody tell me you can't do that. My high school physics class was 50-50 male-female, which I think at that time particularly, because I'm kind of old now, right? <laughs> that was kind of unusual. And I grew up also, though, I loved, I found science fiction books when I was, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade or something, and really loved those. So I don't know if that, that kind of feeds into STEM just because I just liked thinking about all of that and I liked the science and the math. And I liked that better than having to memorize a bunch of stuff. So it just, what can I say? Somehow that was just my path. And I meandered through it. I didn't have a big blueprint from beginning to end, but I wouldn't go back and change it. So it worked out okay. So why, why is it important to get women interested in the STEM fields? 
I just want them to know that, first of all, we do need good representation. And, and it's kind of like, how do you prime the pump? And I think more young women, girls, would look at these careers. And this is slowly happening now when they start to see more women in them. But then you don't get women in them until young girls and young women start to be interested in it. And so somehow you got to get that going. And so I, they, uh, one of the things we did a lot uh, in the astronaut program, and I'm sure the first group of women did it the most, was go out and talk to a lot of uh, schools and children and, and big educational efforts to show that. I don't think everybody certainly does not want to go into these fields, but I want people to know they can. I want them to see people that look like them doing it. And also, we live in such a technology-enhanced world now, and it's just going to get more that way. The more people are aware of some level of education in STEM, the better they can understand what's going on. I, I read this report. In this report, they say that without women in, say, like an engineering position, um, designs get overlooked for needs that women have. Like it says, when the first uh, airbags were coming out, they were designed for male bodies, and when a female was in the seat and the airbag deployed, often it killed her because they didn't calculate like the different body types. I mean, I mean, I think just in general, hey, just to comment on that for a minute, I think they had to design them to the largest male who would be not wearing a seatbelt, and that is why it's dangerous for almost any small person to sit in the front seat. I don't know that that's changed any of their designs. I hope it has, um, or that you could maybe you know dial it back, or you could have a selection. I do think women kind of suffer, and it's kind of like that with the suits we wore for spacewalks. They had to be designed to fit the biggest people with a limited number of options, and since you can't squeeze extra big people in a smaller one, you end up uh, you know kind of biasing it one way. I think that's an absolutely true thing. But the more women in the field, I do think it will change, you know. And, and I, you know, they just weren't used to thinking about women for anything. Or they thought, well, women will never be doing this. Or, I mean, it was, it was, I read so many stories of early women in engineering, you know, they didn't have, even have a restroom to use because, hey, there'd never be women there, right? <laughs> so it goes from the most mundane to, you know, some pretty complex stuff that aren't, that are not well designed for women which will slowly change when women, as they get more and more represented. So, um, I think it's really interesting because females on average do better in high school in like science and math classes, but they're not, like, a lot of them aren't pursuing careers in STEM degrees. Why do you think that is? Several years ago, when I had a friend of mine who was teaching high school science, I was shocked to hear at that time that she had girls come tell her they didn't want to look too smart in front of the boys. So I know these stereotypes are still out there. It's kind of like, well, you may be smart, but you know, this is what girls do, or they're afraid that they will stand out, or you know, what you just want them to feel empowered to do what they want, um, which goes back to role models, I guess. And it's hard. I find that frustrating. I'm not entirely sure how to fix it, but just again, the more exposure they have to what women can do, what careers are out there. And I think they're told, well, you can't have a family and have this job, or they just uh, are discouraged, or sometimes maybe guys don't want to let them into their clique when they're off doing some project, you know, and the, and the girls feel like, ah, I'm going to look stupid if I do this. I think we're all, we go, all of us go through a lot of our life fearing that we're going to look silly, and at some point, you just get to where you don't care anymore. I mean, <laughs> I guess the nice the older you get, but it really, peer pressure your sense of how you look and how you feel and 
Uh, it is true. You have. I think it's kind of too late to reach young women by the time they're in college. They're going to make these decisions usually by the time they're in high school. So just the more role models we can get there and show them what careers are out there. I think it's interesting how a lot of the times because of their grades in these classes, women are almost more qualified than the men that go, to, go into these positions, and yet they're not pursuing those degrees. There's still, I think, bias when they get in academia. There's a lot of studies out there in, in some, like even in grad school for women and grad students have to deal with some very uncomfortable situations sometimes. They just decide it's not worth it. So, I think, you know, it's a two-pronged thing, letting women know these are out there and they are capable and they should you know, choose what they most want to do and it may be something in STEM and to educate men, you know, and maybe they're kind of unconsciously putting some bias out there sometimes. And so I know a lot of universities, you know, are trying to come up with training and things just to uh, make sure. It's very hard to, to convince people they have unconscious biases, you know, but, and so do women, by the way, I'm sure. Uh, everybody does, but we all need to be more aware of them. And there, there is just this... I mean, I, I can't tell you how many groups I've been in, you know. I, actually, this happened to me not that long ago. I was with a group of other former astronauts and engineers, and I walk up, and guy makes a joke back, oh, sorry, we were talking about technical stuff over here. Just kind of like, well, I, he would assume I wouldn't be interested in that. So, you know, those kind of things are still out there. And it doesn't bother me now, you know, because I can come back and make a reply and talk to them about it, but when it's a young woman who's still trying to gain some confidence, and you get a lot of this stuff where well, you wouldn't be interested in this. Mm -hmm. Very often. What do you think educators need to do, not only at like the high school level, but even before that, to get women interested? Well, educators have a lot on their plate, you know. So what? Uh, I mean, I could get on my soapbox about that. I, you know, I think all the standardized testing, all of the regulations, the paperwork. There's so much in the underpayment, you know, of a lot of our teachers in K through 12. They don't have a lot of extra time. They have to be really dedicated, but. Uh, one of the things that we had somebody do here at the University of Missouri, she had a multi-year grant for this, but was to work with teachers who are teaching physics and try to bring them like through the university here. And many of them didn't even major in just trying to say, here's some really cool ways to teach it. Here are things you can use in your classroom. You know, here are uh, things that we think will help hook the students. Uh, so I think there are resources out there that universities can reach out and help you know, their local school systems reward the teachers who are doing these things really well. I was talking to one of my friends like when I was kind of coming up with some questions with this and uh, she said, I feel as though I haven't been informed about the kind of careers. So we just need to tell more women that these careers are out there and yes, you can have them. Or how do you think we should do that? Well, I don't know. So, you know, how do the guys get, how do the guys know about them? You know, uh, what are we doing different? And I, I think sometimes it, it still comes back to expectations. I mean, if the guys know these careers are out there, the women should know, except I think many times they're kind of just being steered in different directions. And that doesn't mean other directions are bad, right? Because it could be the right, there's, there's a lot of careers. Um, I think we just need to start realizing the same ones are available to, to boys and girls and young men and like young women. You see this a lot where there, there are women who are there young women who do really well in these science classes and do really well in math and they just don't feel like they're in the right position you kind of talked about that with expectations like 
they're they're more than qualified for these positions but they just don't take them because i feel like society has told them kind of that hey this is more a job for men and that's it's weird because we're kind of in a more progressive era than a while ago but we still see that kind of stuff we do and i don't really have the clear answer i didn't feel like i got any of that really when i was going through high school and college i did have an advisor who kind of once tried to steer me in a different direction i kind of thought well that's interesting and then i just went ahead and took what i wanted you know so i like somehow and then i naively thought well since it was this way for me it's just getting better for young women right and then i was so surprised when i kind of got back into after grad school and getting to nasa I think a lot of families don't expect their girls to do the same, those daughters to do the same things as their sons. So how do you how do you fix that? And so the biggest influence outside of the home, and I think the home can have a big influence on what girls think they can do. But outside of that, the school is and teachers are probably the next next big thing. And I I have to hope that teachers and high school counselors are telling girls they can do the same jobs. I mean, some things did have to change, like with NASA to hire women astronauts who come through the military pilot training that took a long time because for a long time women weren't allowed in combat so they didn't go to test pilot school which was pretty well required to be competitive to be an astronaut that was hired as a pilot you know as due to the pilot background but after all that change we started having you know qualified candidates come in so um, so you got to look at all the rules and make sure they're fair you've got to try to do the best you can, I think, with people recognizing their unconscious biases. And and I still come back to, if, as far as girls not being aware of careers, boys are. So there again, what is what is happening there? Are they just not hearing the same story? So is there any advice you'd give to a high schooler, or even like a female high schooler in particular? Well, find something that's going to be something you really like to do. Uh, I mean, I just picked what I was... I kind of like my favorite subjects and I went into it and I never thought I'd be an astronaut but the education in the end opened the door so and just try to do it in your own mind realizing what do I like the best not what do people expect of me or I mean it's nice to be able to make a living at it you know, whatever you pick but but don't if you have some things you think you want to do and you're unsure about it you know I would talk to an advisor talk to your teachers and just say here's Here's what I'd like to explore. Can you help me? Uh, I really encourage reading. I mean, I think for me, from a young age, I read so many books, and I just loved reading, and that just kind of opens up a lot of imagination. And maybe you even maybe these become some of your role models. You know, you picture yourself in different situations or doing this, and gradually you feel like you can. Yeah. So just you know, I would tell them first of all, they can do it if they like. If it's something they really want to do, I'm sure they can work at it and succeed. I get talk to counselors. All right. Thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. I'm glad to talk with you. It's very nice. Hopefully we'll talk sometime in the future. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then we can do it again. Yeah. So this is the Shellavision podcast signing off. Hi, I am Quentin Estrada. I'm Caleb Sutton. And I'm Colin Rory. And this is the Shellavision podcast signing off. I'm Philip Tarpley, and this is the Shellavision podcast signing off. Hi, this is Miss Robbins, and this is the Shellavision Podcast signing off. This is Kelsey Ross, and this is the Shellavision Podcast signing off. Hi, I'm Derek Austell, and this is the Shellavision Podcast signing off. This is Dr. Linda Godwin. This has been the Shellavision Podcast signing off.